This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman, bringing clarity to Washington, D.C. news. We see corruption at every level in Washington. Exposing the deception plaguing our nation's capital. Not only what he told every Republican senator, but what he told the press over and over and over again was a simple lie and helping Christians stay informed about government. This puts a bigger burden on voters to go figure out what's actually going on. This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman on American Family Radio. Prison reform equals more crime. That's what we'll be discussing on the show today. Welcome to Exposing Washington on the American Family Radio. Radio Network. I am your host, Walker Wildman. Great to be with you this Saturday afternoon. For those of you listening, you may be listening to the podcast, so it may not be Saturday afternoon. Uh, But one, one important note is we need to remember and continue to pray for those on the eastern seaboard, on the east coast, facing Hurricane Florence. Uh, Now it's just a lot of rain and, and, and potential flooding going on there on the East Coast, now South Carolina and North Carolina. So keep those folks in your thoughts and your prayers. But glad, glad you're joining the show today. A couple things before we get started and jump into the content today is uh, the, the, you can keep up with the show by downloading the podcast on your smartphone or on your tablet device or on your computer. You can download the Exposing Washington podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Walker Wildman on Twitter. The last thing is you can you can watch the show. Actually, you can watch the show on YouTube by just typing in Exposing Washington on YouTube and you'll find our channel there and you can watch the show each Saturday and watch it at your own convenience whenever whenever is convenient for you so multiple ways to keep up with the show today but before we uh we're going to jump into the to the the news of the day and a lot of things going on but before we do that i want to i want to cover a topic that might not be in the news now but it will be in the news in the coming months specifically it will probably make headlines after new after the new year when we have a new congress our new session of, of congress in Washington, D.C. On the line to discuss this topic of prison reform today is Daniel Horowitz. Daniel is a senior editor at Conservative Review and a frequent guest on American Family Radio and other major networks. Daniel, welcome to the show today. Hey, great to be with you, Walker. Yeah, well, I wanted to have you on, Daniel, because I'm, I'm, I'm learning this, this topic. I'm learning what prison reform is and kind of what the goal is for some of the folks leading this charge. But I, don't, I wanted to have you on because you know a lot more about this than I do. But there's, there's this, there was this first step act that passed the House of Representatives back in May. It passed with an overwhelming majority and 60 uh, c- congressmen and congresswomen voted for the bill. So that, that means some conservatives voted for it, some House Freedom Caucus members voted for this bill. It hasn't been brought up in the Senate, but tell us a little bit about this bill and what we think might be coming of it and what some uh, some in leadership, wh- whether it be Chuck Grassley or others, want to make of this bill. 
Sure. I, I think, you know, just, just for the purpose of clarity, it's worth going back a little bit. Um, this is not just about a bill, although I'd like to get to the provisions. It's an entire movement. Um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, it looked like crime was inexorably going up and up, and it would never end. In the 80s, one of Ronald Reagan's most successful agendas was his anti-crime laws he put into place that he understood that the drug traffickers were not just trafficking drugs, but they were responsible for really a lot of the violent crime in the country. We had a lot of liberal judges giving lenient sentences. And, you know, we started in the 80s and 90s a tough-on-crime um, structure mm-hmm. uh, at every step of the legal system, at every step of the criminal justice system. We have actualized from that probably maybe the only positive social trend in our country this generation. We dropped violent crime by 70%. I mean, people remember before the early 90s, it was pretty bad. Mm. Then what happened was we won the issue so in, in, in such a dramatic fashion that we all left the battlefield. Hmm. Last decade, Soros and the far left began pushing what they call criminal justice reform. Well, who opposes something with such a mellifluous-sounding name like that? Hmm. You know, always beware when you hear reform. And what they started doing on a state level is dismantling tougher sentencing, having a bunch of early release programs, felons voting, um, because that's really where this is all about. They want to abolish prison. They want felons to vote. Um, and it's understandable why the left wants this. But, you know, the pseudo-right always has a way of walking the ball in the end zone for them. Hmm. So a bunch of them have been roped in, Republicans, even self-proclaimed conservatives, under the guise of saving money. Well, we're locking <laughs> up too many people. Mm-hmm. The problem is the entire premise of this bill, um, either early release, which the prison bill is, Mm-hmm. Um, release or early sentencing at the at the front end on the sentencing bill, which is the Senate bill, it's built on several erroneous premises. One of the biggest ones is that fundamentally the pendulum of incarceration has swung back the other way this past decade. Um, we're now incarcerating fewer people. The federal prison population, remember, when we're talking about federal legislation, which we are talking about now, we're talking about the federal prison population. There's a couple of important things to know about it. Number one, a huge percentage of it are foreign nationals, um, particularly for drug charges. So that's, a, that's really an immigration issue. Hmm. Number two, these are pound per pound more violent people. That's why they're in the federal system. Often these are people that were arrested for murder or robbery on a state level, but the states failed to land a conviction because I would argue our system isn't tough enough. So therefore the feds will often hit them on drug charges, not drug possession drug trafficking, to be clear, and now the incarceration rate on a federal level is at 1996 level. So we've almost wiped out the entire baseline. Mm. They're coming now and saying, too many people in prison. And incidentally, the last couple of years, after two decades long decline in crime, now violent crime is going back up, you know, according to the FBI, you know, last year, in, mm-hmm. or last year we have records, 2016, Violent crime rose by 4.1%, murder spiked by 8.6%, the single greatest increase in 25 years. You know, it's still not like it was before the 90s, but we don't want to get there. Right. So now is the time we should be circumspect of more jailbreak legislation. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I know I was a little bit long-winded there. What this bill is, they call it prison reform. Right. Now, Walker, what, what comes to mind when you say prison reform? You think, well, I don't know, is there salmonella in the, in the food? Uh, <laughs> is, are you reforming the food, the, the yeah. pillows? Well, it has some, you know, in incarceration programs that they deal with, and, you know, we could talk about the problems with that. Right. But the most important thing is it's an early release bill. Someone who has a 10-year sentence for trafficking fentanyl or heroin would now get out after seven years with all the time credits they create. I mean, at a time when Congress is passing, I'm not joking, 70 bills, a package of 70 bills on Monday, the Senate's mm. voting on, to deal with the opioid crisis. Notice they call it an opioid crisis, not a polydrug crisis, right. which it is. So you can't have it both ways. If we have a drug crisis, why are you letting out the drug traffickers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Daniel. And and to get back to the whole, we we all know, you and I know, and and your your sane American people know that prison reform equals letting thugs, drug dealers out early, which means more people back dealing drugs, selling drugs, smoking, doing drugs. But but there's this whole angle that if we let folks out early, let folks out who you know have done their time, as they say. If we let them out early, we're all of a sudden going to save millions and billions of dollars in incarceration fees. When in reality, Daniel, if I'm not mistaken, these prisons don't lower their budgets when we pass these prison reforms. If anything, they raise their budgets. So how are we saving money here, or are we? The most conservative estimate on the cost of crime to property, people forget that that is about $18 billion a year. The entire cost of the Federal Bureau of Prisons is $7 billion. The cost of crime is a much bigger deal. You know, I have a novel idea. Um, we could save even more money. Let's just abolish all prison, which, by the way, is basically <laughs> what Soros wants to do. I mean, you can look right. at Politico as a good article on that. They really want to abolish prisons. That's where this is headed. Mm-hmm. This is just aptly named the First Step Act because it's literally the first step to dismantling the system. They, they consider this uh, very modest. Uh, the, the reality is, I mean, we could save a lot of money not having a military. We could save a lot of money not having border patrol. But there are certain things that are vital to society um, that you do need to do. And, you know, one of, the, one of the problems that is endemic of this bill and many other efforts is that they want to have it both ways. On the one hand, they want to let people out. But on the other hand, they want to say they're saving money. Right. But then they don't – so therefore they don't appropriate – enough money to even make their provisions work under their bill. Let me give you two examples. Number one, there's a provision in this bill, the First Step Act, to let out a number of very violent people. Um, I mean, when you're talking about drug traffickers, you know, they call them nonviolent offenders. Talk to any cop or any prosecutor, and they, and they start smirking when you say that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you know, give me a break. But they let them out into home confinement. Now, the thing is, home confinement, we have a lot of this throughout our system, and People think that there's a cop, you know, monitoring a map 24-7, and, you know, as soon as he leaves, it, it, you know, it, it, it just goes up. We just had someone where I live in Baltimore County kill a female cop. Um, he was on home confinement. Um, it, it's very insecure, and according to the Bureau of Prisons, it costs three times more per diem than incarceration, yeah. right? Because, you know, an institution, say what you want about it, but it's a fixed cost. If you want to replicate a security model in someone's home, I mean, that, that, 
that's a big cost. They don't appropriate the money. Right. Because if they did, then they wouldn't have the talking point of saving money. But then now it's a joke. You're essentially just uh, letting them go. The other thing is they promise all these programs, more Internet time, more phone time, all this. Um, Who's going to pay you know, for that? Uh, flexibility, and there's no funding for it. Right. And, and the prison wardens union of all people, they're, they're opposed to this bill because they're saying, you're going to endanger our security guards. A lot of people don't realize, you know, again, we're talking about the federal prison population. By and large, these are really bad dudes, mm-hmm. uh, much more so than on the state level. Yeah. And, you know, they um, that is a very big deal when you offer them more flexibility and you don't give them more manpower to deal with that. I mean, this bill was, even under their own premise, it was written as a talking point. It wasn't written practically to implement because they have two conflicting goals that make no sense. Right. All right, Daniel, tell our folks, thanks for coming on Exposing Washington. Tell our folks where they, where they can follow you and then where they can also read your articles. Absolutely. Follow me at, on Twitter at rmconservative. Go to conservativereview.com. Click on my name. You can see my archive of articles. Just Google my name, crime, jailbreak, prison, sentencing, mm-hmm. and you'll get the truth on this very important issue. All right, Daniel, thanks for coming on Exposing Washington. Take care. God bless. All right, Daniel. That was Daniel Horowitz with the Conservative Review, and I'll post Daniel's latest article on this subject on our podcast page at AFR.net. But I know that was a lot lot of information there, folks. But what I want you to get from this is that there will be a prison reform bill debated in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, in the coming months— probably after the new year and the the media and the left and some on the right even are going to try to talk you into this bill and tell you about how good this bill is for our country how it's going to save us money how we're going to let let these nonviolent offenders out of jail and they're going to go be productive american citizens but it's all a farce it's all a farce, folks, and, and Daniel just explained it well. The thing is, prison reform equals more crime. That's the conclusion I'm coming to here. Prison reform equals more crime because it puts the criminals back on the street, back in their homes early, only for our local law enforcement to have to clean up the mess and deal with these criminals when they're back on the streets when they shouldn't be. I mean, how many stories do we read on this issue where you see a crime happen, and in the headline, in the news story about the crime, whether it be somebody's murdered, a bank is robbed, etc., you see that the person was let out of jail early by the judge. We see this all the time. And I mean, there, there's even examples here locally where you have criminals getting out of jail early because the judges are letting them out, And then they're going on to commit all kind of crimes. And guess who's responsible? Guess who has to clean up the mess? Our local law enforcement officials. And so more on that coming in in future months, and I'll be sure to cover it here on the show. The... The the uh, another story I want to move on and talk about is as video came out this week of these Google executives basically having a pity party at their headquarters in Silicon Valley whining about President Trump, about candidate Donald Trump winning the 2016 election. I'm going to jump right into this. We only have about 10 minutes left on the show. This is clip one, a Google executive answering questions uh, just a couple days after the election. Let's listen. 
one of the main messages I've gotten from all of you today is that this election and others like it around the world are a hiccup in history's arc towards progress. But uh, what makes you so sure about that? I mean, is this a relatively new arc or is this the same arc that has included two world wars? Mm. Since it's my metaphor, I'll take it up. Um, <laughs> the, the, there are no guarantees, right? And there are, hiccup is a kind word. There, history is not a linear pattern. We do everything we can to keep it moving in a good direction. Uh, if you look over the broad reach of any 20, 50, 100 year period, there's less death, life, and life expectancy goes up, people are doing better and more prosperous. The arc does go like this exponentially in terms of standards of living around the world. Yes, it's not completely smooth, it goes up and down, and I think history teaches us that there are periods of populism, of, of nationalism that rise up, and we, that's all the reason we need to be in the arena. That's why we have to work so hard to make sure it doesn't turn into a world war or something catastrophic, but instead is a blip, is a hiccup. All right, so there you have it. Th th look, this is, a, this is a, a, a group of Google top executives talking to their staff, and they, they called President Trump's victory, basically they called it a hiccup are a small part of history in the sense that they hope it never happens again. And then the Google executive there, and I'll post all of this on the podcast page at AFR.net, but, but the executive there basically said, that's why Google is here. Google is here to ba basically make sure that things like Donald Trump winning the presidency don't happen again. Or if they happen, they, have to, they happen very, very uh, not often. And so it's one thing, and what the, one of the points here is that this is not Google wanting to influence elections by maybe campaign donations or voter turnout. I would argue that Google is willing to go as far, and they are going as far, to use their technology and capabilities to influence voters directly. One example of this, this is a part of the same video that was released this week of Google executives having a pity party about President Trump winning the election in 2016. This is clip two, a Google employee asking how Google is going to regulate, quote, fake news. Let's listen. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it useful. But during this election cycle, we've seen a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation. We've seen a lot of fake news coming from fake news websites being shared by millions of low information voters on social media. And ultimately, there's been many, many people who've been voting, who've been acting based on completely made up uh, information. So can Google do anything to try to filter this out, to tr try to do something against uh, very organized, very intense uh, campaigns of disinformation targeted at, at low information people? Look, I, I think our investments in machine learning and AI is a big opportunity here. Uh, you know, there are work we have done. Uh, the Jigsaw team did around what they call conversation AI around, you know, to, to look at bullying and, you know, commenting. And so a lot of this is a problem of scale and not being able to keep up. So like human systems fail in many of these things. So I think, but, you know, investing more in machine learning and AI could be one way we actually make progress on some of this, uh, the mo uh, some of this stuff. Uh, but I think we should do more. All right, well, there you have it. That's Google's number two executive. I can't think of his name. Google's number two executive there answering the question, what is Google going to do in the future after 2016 to regulate, quote, fake news and help 
basically get rid of low information voters on their platforms or basically make them better informed voters. What I want us to get from this is when people at Google, when they use the term, quote, fake news and they use the term low information voters, they're talking about Trump voters. They're talking about conservatives. They're talking about Republicans. We are conservatives are low information voters. And another thing I want to point out here is when they say, you know, we need to help get rid of fake news. We need to help filter out fake news on Google search results, etc. They're talking about what their version of fake news is American Family Radio. Their version of fake news is the exposing Washington radio show. Their version of fake news would be onenewsnow.com, which is our news service. And so fake news for them is, th- is, is news sites that put out facts and information that doesn't fit their narrative and that they don't like. So we need to be very careful about s- accepting this premise that Google and others are out for our best interests and they're out to rid the world of false information and fake news. We all know that Google and these big tech companies, they often help aid and, and put out the most fake news of it all, which is put out by CNN, MSNBC, and all the mainstream media outlets who do not do fact-checking, and they completely ignore half of the story and many of the stories they cover. But moving on here, this is clip three. This is the last clip in this series And this is a Google executive comparing the 2016 election results to the rise in fascism. Let's listen. For the record, I think it's worth really worrying about. I think, you know, there's, you know, data suggests that boredom led to the rise of fascism and also to the communist revolution. I mean, there are many other factors, too. Um, But, uh, you know, it sort of sneaks up uh, sometimes, you know, really bad things. So I think it's, it's worth being very vigilant and thinking about all these issues. What can we do to lead to maybe a better quality of governance, decision-making, and so forth? All right, so there you have it. That's the last clip. Another Google executive there, just, con- just first off, he said this. He said that boredom, boredom, People being bored have nothing to do. That led to the rise in fascism and communism in, in, in history past, in, in, in recent history. Who actually believes that? That's factually unfounded. Talk about fake news. What he's saying there is we had Nazi Germany because... Because Hitler and others got bored because they didn't have anything to do, so they just decided they would start this movie, that th- this movement called Nazism. That's absolutely ridiculous. But the reason they do that, the reason he would make a claim like that, is because that takes out personal responsibility from from evil. It removes the whole fact that man is and is inherently sinful, which is what Scripture teaches us. And so the Google executive there, first off, makes this false claim that boredom led to the rise uh, of fascism and communism. And you know what context he's talking there? Not only is is he talking about history, but he's talking about President Trump winning the 2016 election. He's comparing that to another rise in fascism. How utterly ridiculous is that? But this is the way these folks think. This is the way they think. 
They think that conservatives, that people who love our country, who adhere to the Constitution, and who appreciate our history, the history of our country, they think those people are the same people that started the Nazi movement in Europe. And they genuinely believe that. That's why when they go to purging conservatives off their platforms, they view it as this righteous, pure, holy mission. And that's why they don't bat an eye when it comes to banning conservatives, blocking conservatives from their platforms. And I believe that these companies are already beginning to use this narrative to block conservatives from accessing their platforms. And the examples of this happening are too many to mention. And so the end game here is that all conservative speech will be banned completely from these platforms or it will be highly censored. And that's what we're seeing going on now. The highly censoring the censoring of all conservative speech on these platforms. So a couple ways, just a couple tips before we wrap up this subject to fight this censorship and future censorship is first off, we need to be sure to use conservative and trustworthy news sites, i.e. American Family Radio, OneNewsNow.com, and others. There's many other trustworthy and conservative constitutional news sites the last thing we need to do is we don't need and this is along the same lines we can no longer rely on facebook twitter google and others to find the news that is important to us to find the news that we need to read because guess what they're doing they're bumping the conservative and trustworthy news sites to the very bottom And then the fake news media like CNN, MSNBC, and others, they're bumping their results to the top. And so all you're going to get, if you you only rely on these platforms, all you're going to get is biased and oftentimes unreliable news stories from outlets that you cannot trust. A couple other news stories before we wrap up the show today is, I'll just mention this one. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, he admitted this week that he's essentially been conducting, quote, shadow diplomacy with countries like Iran. Countries who hate America, who want to see America and Israel, by the way, completely obliterated and destroyed. Well, John Kerry, the former Secretary of State under President Obama, he's been meeting with these, these foreign countries, these diplomats, trying to work out deals and salvage deals, things like the horrible Iran deal. And so, guess what, though? The the reason I brought this up is shadow diplomacy is illegal. Shadow diplomacy is illegal. John Kerry is not supposed to be conducting foreign policy on behalf of the U.S. when he's not a duly elected official or a duly nominated official by the executive branch. Can you imagine if I started going and negotiating on behalf of America with foreign countries and trying to manipulate foreign policy? No, that would be unacceptable, and John Kerry should not be doing that. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a criminal investigation into John Kerry and his illegal shadow diplomacy. 
Thanks for tuning in to Exposing Washington. More next week. Stay tuned to American Family Radio. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.